Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author Mitch James, the author of Seldom Seen, A Miner's Tale. A Dead Mother an auction childhood home, a coal mine that cradles its dead. Follow Brander into the womb of seldom-seen mine as he fights to amend his life among dead friends and lost lovers with a mine not entirely within his control. Mitch James is a professor of composition and literature at Lakeland Community College in Kirtland, Ohio, and the managing editor at Great Lakes Review. His fiction, poetry, and scholarship can be found in many journals in the U.S. and abroad. You can find out more about his work at MitchJamesAuthor.com. Seldom Seen is his first novel. Mitch, welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show. Uh, Thank you. Great to be here, Lawrence. Well, I have to say, reading the opening, Dead Mother, Auction Home, Coal Mine That Cradles Its Dead, this sounds like the opening of, of a horror novel. But uh, I, I know it's it's not. It's very deep. So kind of give us an overview of uh, of what we have going on here. Yeah. So, I mean, there is it's definitely not a, a horror novel in the traditional sense, but there's some harrowing things in it, I think. Um, but, yeah, so it, it starts out with uh, Brander Matthews, who has sort of a, uh, you know, a rough relationship with this family. Uh, he leaves home uh, after high school and uh, traps in Alaska for a little while, then comes back and he finds out that his mother has passed away from cancer and the home that he grew up in is going to be auctioned off. And he just doesn't really have any bearings in his life at that point. Uh, he ends up running into this this sort of interesting figure um, that pops up, you know, off and on throughout the novel, who ultimately kind of convinces him that maybe there's some freedom in a different place in the country out in the coal mine and and so brander moves his way out there runs in meets meets people makes friends uh just kind of creates a budding relationship but ultimately things um don't necessarily improve for him so um and then i don't want to say too much more because i want there to be some surprises for anyone who wants to read it but it is a sort of a coming of age kind of tale um in sort of the rough rough sort of appalachia southern gothic kind of rural sense um yeah yeah very interesting so where is he born? And then the seldom seen mine is in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, so he's born in uh, central Illinois. Um, and seldom seen mine is in Pennsylvania. And and I, I think it's important for anyone who reads this, especially those uh, from the area to recognize that it is a it is a work of fiction. So for example, in the book, Seldom Seen Mine is uh, one of the largest coal mines in the United States. That's a complete fiction. Seldom Seen Mine is nowhere near one of the largest coal mines in the United States. Right, right. Uh, it never has been, um, and now it's you know it's not even an operational mine anymore. And it was a tourist attraction for a while, uh, but I don't. I think around COVID time, I noticed that it seemed like it had closed. I have not been there uh, during that time, but it seems like even online, it's been permanently closed. So, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, fictional liberties taken on my part. Um, with the with the novel, but yeah, it, it, a lot of it does take place in the mine and in that area, <clears throat> um, which I am familiar with from the time that I lived in Pennsylvania. Yeah, interesting. So, as as I kind of hear the the story and think about it, J.D. Vance's book *Hillbilly Elegy* comes to mind as maybe some kind of parallel to this. Maybe it's about the area, the region, and some of the 
difficulties that have been experienced there, the decline. Is there some of that in this, or is this more a positive portrayal of coal mines? Oh, that's a, that's a real tough one because you know there there are elements of J.D. Vance's work um, that that I resonate that resonates with my work, but I would say more importantly, there's things about that about some of his work that sort of rung true to me as a person who grew up uh, in a poor rural area and have basically lived in poor rural areas most of my life. Mm-hmm. There was there were some levels of truth to his work that made sense to me. That's aside from from his, his him as a person or whatever his personal and, and political agendas are, that kind of thing. Just right. talking about the, the art itself. But I but I don't know that I would say, you know, that someone who's going to go read J.D. Vance's book would really like mine. They, they are very different. I would say it's probably more in the line of maybe Stephen Markley's book, Ohio, or if you're looking at Appalachian Writer, um, uh, think about um, uh, David Joy in line with, with, I think, what Seldom Seen probably is. But yes, you are going to you are going to meet salt of the earth, hard scrabbled folks. Um, I don't think the people are as negatively portrayed as they are in J.D. Vance's book. That wasn't my experience, but there are some tough things to look at and some some tough interactions to to read through. Yeah, I know, and we've placed this with our Catamount Press imprint and excited to grow that and, and do that. Uh, one of the things we're doing with the imprint is bringing back some of the canon, some of the older works, uh, Herbert Stover and Henry Shoemaker come to mind, and they seem to capture a character in the area. The the region itself, the place, is a character. Yeah, it's it's just different than other parts of the world, and other, certainly other parts of Pennsylvania. And the hard scrabble characters that you mentioned are certainly a part of that. I know in both of those authors, their works uh, capture unusual people and always portrayed either in interesting or uh, sometimes comedic but never in negative ways. It's always um, more about um, a positive portrayal or something cultural about them that it captures. And you know, so it's really interesting to see new works, contemporary works coming out uh, in this region, which really has, hasn't gotten its due in the past uh, to the degree that other regions in the country do. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. I mean, I, I don't know that... I... I guess it might be fair to say that I'm a fairly regional writer in the sense that a lot of my stuff is rural based Midwest, uh, Appalachia, that kind of thing, because that's where I've spent most of my life in, in those two areas. But, um, you know, Appalachia is so big and, you know, becoming more familiar since I've moved to Ohio, I've sort of gotten to know some folks in uh, the Appalachian portion of Ohio, you know, like 40% of Ohio or something like that. Don't quote me exactly on that number, but somewhere around like 40% is actually Appalachia. And I didn't realize that when I moved here. And as I've gotten to know some local writers and stuff, I've gotten to know those communities down there. And and that level, that Appalachia there was a, was the same, but also unique to my experiences in different parts of Pennsylvania, right, or even in West Virginia. And so I think it's important when we're talking about place and region that we're realizing that these these places are very large. And while you might be able to draw some generalizations that sort of spread the expanse, that there's lots of nuances that are there, too. So I think people have to be careful when they say, like, I am this kind of writer speaking for this this place or something like that. But I but I do think that um, that. Appalachia is beginning to get its due. Like I, I do. Like there are places where you can go and get concentrations. And I don't know if there's a place where you could actually get a full degree in in Appalachian like literature. But there are in Appalachian studies. 
Um, so it's not like it doesn't have the sort of focus that the South has had for sure. Um, but it has more focus than the Midwest does. Yeah. And so I think Appalachia is growing in that in that regard. Yeah, you're sounding a lot like P.J. Piccarillo, who I know very well, who uh, founded the Writers' Conference of Northern Appalachia. And yeah, West Virginia on up, uh, mostly Western PA, a little bit of New York, um, but and some of Ohio. But it, it's sort of that, that region along the uh, the Alleghenies and the uh, the rivers of in the Pittsburgh area and the, the West Branch of the Susquehanna, the Juniata Valleys. That those areas, there is a, a history to it that is somewhat shared and a little bit different than the Southern Appalachia regions and perhaps there's more than two it's probably a bunch of disparate somewhat related uh, areas but uh, fascinating and great to see that uh, you know we're talking about it and others are studying it maybe uh, a program in it someday would be amazing Um, we're going to take a break but when we come back we're going to talk about who might be part of that curriculum Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of authors from many genres. If you are into horror, thrillers, or fantasy, check out our Hellbender Books imprint, Thomas Malafarina's Malaformed Reality series, The Thirteenth Child by Nick Korolev, The State Changers series by Chris Fenwick, or the psychological thrillers of Keith Rommel. Find these and other works at the Hellbender Books tab and all works of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. I'm talking to Mitch James, the author of Seldom Seen, A Miner's Tale. And we've been talking about the literary region of, I guess, northern Appalachia. So what would you make of that? A professor, you're going to make a curriculum out of it. What kinds of things would you structure? <laughs> would you? Obviously, you have to kind of get into a little history, and I'm a historian, or at least an aspiring one. Uh, a little history, some literature to read, maybe some creative writing. I don't know. What, what would your ideas be? Yeah, I mean, I would, that's, <laughs> that's really putting me on the spot because, um, yeah, you know, I don't know that I would consider myself an expert enough in the region to to put together a, a curriculum on it. But I guess um, I do work, I do work that type of writing, Appalachian writing, um, not so much historical work and stuff, but I do work some of the writing into some of the classes I teach, primarily my fiction writing classes, but the curriculum itself is not Appalachian based entirely. But, you know, if I were to, if I were to kind of just take a stab at it off the top of my head, um, I would need to brush up more on the historical elements, but you're absolutely right. How the important, the, the history is so important, um, to separate the writing and the history is a mistake, but, um, my historical knowledge is not very robust, but I, I definitely, you know, some of the, there's some older writers, uh, Wilma Dykeman from like the, the early 1900s. Um, she has some work that, that I think would find a place in a class like that. Um, some living writers, uh, Ron Rash and Pancake, uh, Frank X. Walker, if you're familiar with his work. Um, these are all living writers who are really instrumental um, in, in multiple genres as well uh, in Appalachian writing. Um, uh, David Joy, who I mentioned earlier, um, who just had a new book come out. Um, you know, he's probably in his upper thirties or early forties. So these, these folks are alive and writing well. Crystal uh, Wilkinson is another one. And so I think that as you can see, I think I would be trending more towards the living writers for better or for worse. Uh, That partly comes from my lack of, 
um, sort of reading whatever the sort of uh, like you were you're, you're naming folks. I know that you're you're unearthing these Stover works, right? And I think I think this is very fascinating. But like that kind of historical uh, lineage knowledge is something that I don't have. So a lot of my writers would be living, which has its pros and its cons, right? Um, but but yeah, I think I would be in that that arena. Not real historical based, but that but if I were building a class, I would get that history first. I don't build curriculums until they're ready, and I don't teach the class until those curriculums are ready. But well, which, you caught me off guard a little bit. That's all right. <laughs> no, I, that's my job. So <laughs> what I would suggest is why don't you invite me out to be a guest lecturer on the history of the region? Because <laughs> I've been that would be yes, yes, that would be amazing. If this if this course ever comes to fruition, uh, Lawrence, you'll, <laughs> you'll definitely be on the roster for that. Yeah. Well, I I know you're brown nosing, but I. Uh, Unfortunately, I've had to to bone up on all this because I've I've been publishing the works and I I uh, I've what I found and I'll share a little bit of history for the listeners too. Uh, certainly, in the region in Western Pennsylvania, uh, and I've been interested in Pennsylvania history for quite a while. But um, my interest comes out of Pennsylvania Dutch history and a guy named Conrad Weiser who does a lot of work with the Native Americans in the colonial period. Well, he ends up going west as well into the hills and out to the Fort Pitt area and even the what's called the Ohio area. So that that's early history of the western region. What's interesting about it, what's different about it, is it converts over to uh, the European settlers a lot later than the southeastern part of Pennsylvania. So the hills are more were the frontiersmen. A lot of them Scotch-Irish woodsmen are out hunting and trapping. Uh, it, it's a period of time that lasts in to like at, just after the Revolution. So the area doesn't get settled till maybe 100 years later than southeastern Pennsylvania. And you, you have more of that woodland, log cabin, canoe in the river, uh, hunter-trapper, pioneer kind of mindset. And then... Oh, with the Industrial Revolution, all of a sudden Pittsburgh's making iron and steel, and you have that whole uh, industrial aspect of it. So there's this conversion of woodlands where the the natives uh, are chased out, and you know settlers come sparsely, but there's very few pockets of really uh, big industrial growth along the way. The na- the natural resources are exploited, the, the lumber's cut and the minerals dug, and so on. So there's a, a period of conversion, and that's a lot of what Shoemaker writes about. He laments what, what's what been lost. Stover gets into the historical fiction of the region and the, the hard scrabble characters and the brave things that they did over history. A lot of it is accurate. Most of it's invented or twisted in some way to uh, make it more dramatic, but uh, both of them are, I think, important writers, at least from a Pennsylvania perspective. But so, you know, I mentioned the word hard scrabble again, and I know your characters. Is there some something in particular do you think stands out in the region as far as the way people think or act? Well, you know, I I don't know how how this will go over with uh, with listeners, but like I said, I've I've spent you know pretty much my entire life living in sort of rough rural areas. Um, and while there are differences in say the, the rough rural areas of areas of um, Missouri where I lived and Illinois where I lived and Pennsylvania, like there are these differences. I actually find more of a commonality between just ruralism and the nature of the people um, that you know 
make those those areas thrive sometimes with with nothing um the mindsets and the work ethics that they have um which is something that i have but now that i sort of have moved into where what i do professionally it's a very different life than anyone in my family has ever had you know and um so now i get to see a different side of it i get to see it sort of from the outside as well as having seen it from the inside and so you know it's more about like there are new uh, there are nuances where i guess like if I were writing about um, a, a rural, you know, a poor rural or hardworking rural person uh, in Illinois, there might be more of a focus on, you know, the land or something, I guess, possibly. I've noticed that a lot of the stuff will have to do with the land because I grew up around farming and, and doing farming and that kind of stuff. Whereas the land focus and the stuff that has to do with Appalachia for me oftentimes has to do more with like Mother Earth and less Mother Earth as an entity as and less of of people as sort of the curators of the earth kind of thing or the moderators of it. And so I see those kind of distinctions, but but for better or for worse, I actually find more commonality just between rural people, the sort of work ethic, the the hard nose sort of they're gonna get it done no matter what, um, a kind of stubbornness that sometimes works in their favor and sometimes works against them a kind of deep pride um, in their ability to keep themselves elevated and, and do the things that need to be done when they realize a lot of people from other positions may not have the stomach for it, to do the work that a lot of people don't want to do, but that needs to be done um, and to have pride about that. So, I mean, those kinds of things for me are pervasive across sort of blue collar or working poor um, uh, rural folks, whether you're in Appalachia or the Midwest or, or even with some of the time I've had in the South. Yeah, so it sounds like it's it's working hard more to survive rather than to get rich quick. It's uh, oh yeah, definitely, and definitely, and finding you know finding these little moments of preciousness preciousness in that um, where the meaning is the work and the work is the meaning. Um, yeah, yeah. All right. On that note, we're going to take another break. We'll be right back. Listen for the Brown Posey Press podcast available here on the Bookspeak Network. I'm Tori Gates, and my guests include fellow authors on our fiction imprint, but also other independent and self-published writers, poets, movers, and shakers in the literary world. Listen for current and previous shows here. The Bookspeak Network brings the story behind the stories and their creators here. I'm talking to Mitch James, the author of Seldom Seen, A Miner's Tale. Mitch, uh, here in our last segment, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, your teaching. Uh, I know you or at Lakeland Community College. What's Lakeland like? And where exactly is Kirtland, Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> well, Kirtland, Ohio um, is about, I don't know, 40, 35 or 40 minutes-ish um, southeast of Cleveland. You know, you got to put everything on Cleveland because that's the nearest city. Okay. Um, it is a rural area. Um, it's this cute little area, um, kind of in the, the small hills of, of, uh, Ohio and, uh, Kirtland is actually like right on the border of a, of a place called Minner, which is actually where I live. And then, and then Kirtland, um, Lakeland community college is, is a, you know, it's a, it's a nice size, mid-sized sort of community college. Uh, lots of commuters, as you can imagine, is a community college. We serve Lake County predominantly, um, we have adjacent to us a, a much larger community college uh, right in, right in uh, Cleveland, which serves Cuyahoga County. Um, but, you know, it's it's a it's a good school. I mean, you know, you have I have a classroom this semester that has, you know, 
uh, a single mom with two kids in it, uh, an ex-con trying to get his life right, a 15-year-old who's excelled in high school. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a real fun experience as an educator. Um, you, you never know what you're going to have. And uh, it's a good time. I enjoy it there. Yeah. No, I've done some teaching myself over the years. I've always enjoyed doing that. And yeah, it, it, it you never know who's going to show up that first day. And uh, some people you expect, uh, I'll just, just say, sometimes they surprise you, some people that you might have day one, you're thinking, oh, I don't know about that person or what their story is, but you find out they're actually trying real hard or they're a really good student or have some very interesting points of view. Um, I need to get back in the classroom once I finish this PhD. I for sure will want to do that again. But um, congratulations to you uh, on the work you're doing. I, I know um, it's important, and I'm sure, I'm hoping you enjoy it as well. How, how much of your, uh, of your week, though, are you able to be creative and write, and how much of it is uh, preparing for class and grading papers and having uh, guidance meetings? Yeah, uh, there's, I, as you can imagine, there's not nearly as much time for writing as I would probably like. <laughs> I think that is every, every writer who also teaches, um, which I think a lot of us do, you know, like, for me, I wanted to get into, I loved to write, and I loved English and reading. That's why I wanted to get into English. But I realized that I probably wasn't going to make enough money writing to support myself and I needed a career. And I also liked to teach and to learn and that stuff always uh, fuels the the writing. So it's kind of like this cycle, you know, but, but you find yourself, you know, for the, up until about maybe a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, from the time I was about 24 to the time I was about 35, 34, um, I would get up five or six days a week at three in the morning and I would write from three to five every day. And that is where I've produced um, a bulk of what I have now. And then about the time I got uh, about 45 or 40, so about two or three years ago, I, I just started needing more than six hours of sleep a night. I just couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do it anymore. And it's a little <laughs> frustrating sometimes because um, now I don't, you know, I don't have two hours a day every day uh, to write like I used to. I used to mm -hmm. be able to sit down and do a couple thousand words, a thousand words at minimum every day, if not two, and just was, was producing a ton. But I've also had to, you know, realize that like, you know, I got to be good to my my mind and my body and I have to rest and stuff. And so I, I'm finding, I'm still finding plenty of time, but yes, a lot of time is, is a class prep grading, working with students, engaging with them one-on-one -on -one in my office hours and stuff. I have a lot of, uh, you know, disadvantaged students and high risk students. So they require a lot of, of, uh, attention from me and that, that I want to give them, but you know, it is time consuming. Um, but I, I'm lucky, I, you know, I still have, even though I have a lot of work to do, I'm, I have complete control over my life. I have a wife that's very understanding and, 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 and uh, takes pride in the work that I do and wants to give me the time to do that. Um, I don't have any kids. So, you know, those two things alone, just having a spouse that's supportive and not having children, I have more time than most people do, even if I'm working 50 hours a week for, for my, my job. Well, I, I hear you about needing rest. Uh, what you need to do is get a sofa in your office and take a 20-minute cat nap with your door closed and turn the lights out if, <laughs> if the administration would let you. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm intrigued, though, by the early morning, late night hours being inspired to work at that time, to write at that time, at least the way you used to write. Uh, what is it about that hour of the night that you were so creative at that time? Well, it, 
it's about getting it done mm. before anybody else needed anything from me, honestly. You mm. know, three o'clock in the morning, when you're, when you're going to bed at three, that means you've had a hell of a night. Uh, it could be good. <laughs> it could be bad, right? Um, <laughs> and depending on what you have to do the next day and what time. But but waking up at three, as awful as I think that sounds to some people, it was a really special thing for me. Um, the world really is down uh at three o'clock in the morning like there's nothing going on the partying is done the day hasn't started there is this amazing peace at that time and there was something so ritualistic for me of getting up getting that cup of coffee sitting down and and, and banging it out at the keys for a while and i do really miss that um, almost as a kind of ritual and therapy um but and i i will squeeze them in every once in a while because i do sometimes just wake up at 3 30 or 4 and i feel rested and i get to it but ritually on a day-to-day basis i can't do it anymore and i do miss it a little bit but but yeah it's just having this having the world to myself for a couple of hours where nobody is going to need anything from me because nobody's up it's mm. just nice yeah so uh great lakes review tell us a little bit about that and what it's like to be a managing editor yeah, you know it's it's interesting. It's on one hand, I, Great Great Lakes Review is a is a small regional uh, literary journal. We publish uh, short fiction, poetry, um, uh, nonfiction, and photography. We do one or two print issues a year um, when we can, and the rest of the time we're online. And we publish new work every Thursday, and we publish new interviews every uh, first Friday of the month. Um, running this journal is is interesting. Um, I just kind of moved into it on accident. I, I met a guy who used to run it and it was on hiatus and we became friends and he sort of was like, you should do this. And I thought, okay, why not? I've met some really cool writers, uh, gone to some cool events. I think, and maybe you, you'll, you'll agree with this, Lawrence. One of the, the, my favorite things about running the journal, um, one is giving new people who haven't ever had anything published. That first publication is a great feeling. Um, and, and getting to uh, become part of a writing community, I didn't recognize how much I wanted or needed that. Everything else for me had been so independent. Um, and now just having that as something I do, I get to meet a lot of people. And all of a sudden now I'm always going to open mics and I'm talking to poet laureates and stuff around different states and around other countries. And it's not a like you know, like a look how cool I am kind of thing, but it's, it's a genuine, you're mm-hmm. getting to know people in a genuine way for the love of the craft and the art. And yes, sometimes it does have some benefit in the sense that someone's like, Hey, can I review this? Or, Hey, Hey, you should send something here to publish it. But mostly it's just getting to meet like-minded people, share your, your passion. And it, the journal has done that for me. And, and I really like that. Well, I, I agree with you completely. And I, I know speaking for myself anyway, uh, remaining humble, and helping people and building a network that has tremendous benefits and just a great, lot of energy and a lot of great things. It, it really brings some meaning to what we do every day. And, yes, and it feels good, doesn't it? It just feels good. Yeah, know? it's all about, it's not about yourself. It's about the other people and how they're, they're feeling and what they're up to. Um, so uh, how has the book been received? I, I think well so far. Um, you would you know how many more copies we've actually sold than I do, um, but I do know that I've had a number of friends and family already get get theirs. Um, I know that I have some requests from colleagues and things like that. I've I've been booking uh, some readings and stuff. I've probably got half a dozen things lined up right now, and and many more that is on my schedule to do. Um, I think it's it's. I mean, I have no, I had no expectations going into it. I never, I always try to have no major expectations in anything, you know, but it's just like, 
this project is done. Sunberry seems like a cool press. It seems very supportive, and and I'm gonna push and do the best I can and enjoy myself. And I, so far, I, I, it's looking good. Good, yeah. I, I would say uh, you can't always tell when a book comes out how it, how well it's received versus how many copies sell. Often, can there can be a disparity there? Like, hey, people are loving it, but I could be selling more. Or sometimes a book sells really well and you're getting bad reviews. <laughs> so. It, this business is just crazy. You can't explain it all the time. But uh, what I will say is the the best thing you can do to sell more books is to keep publishing, keep writing, and putting out new material. And it will build over time, much like your network with the with the Great Lakes Review and the people you're meeting. So uh, to that end, I know this book's out. You're still promoting it. You're still talking about it. But what do you have in the works? Is there anything uh, on the horizon for you? <laughs> So many things, Lawrence. I've got um, I've got two novels that are ready, pretty much ready to go. I've got a third I'm working on. I've got um, I'm I'm putting together a book of uh, uh, poetry right now. Um, I've got uh, two short story collections that are done and ready to go, um, and I'm working on a third. So there's there's never there's never an end in sight for me, but I like it. So yeah, there yeah. will be there will be more projects. Um, if somebody you know if there's a place that's interested, um, they're, they're going to be available. So excellent. Yeah, we have we have some authors that have over a dozen books with us, and I just say uh, it seems like if you're on a pace of about every six months, you have a release coming out. Um, that's a a really good pace to build momentum. If you at a at a minimum should be about once a year and if you slip to a new release about every 18 months <clears throat> that's too infrequent you lose momentum so it's that one year mark or a little less having something new and fresh it doesn't always have to be in the same genre but um building on that sometimes writing series can also really help so at least that's what what i've seen as far as uh trying to put a schedule to things so we're always very excited to see anything else that you might be working on fantastic yeah. So uh, any events coming up that you'd like to talk about before we uh, before we break? Yeah, there's a there's a handful. Um, I've got Oh, I'm going to be at the Wakana conference, as you mentioned, um, uh, promoting the book and doing a reading from there. Um, and I've got um, a reading here in Cleveland Heights at the Urban Winery. And this is going to be a large soir- literary soiree, we're calling it. There, there's going to be me, but also a, a handful of other writers, one being my wife who recently had a book of poetry come out. And th- that's going to be a big event with lots of people. Um, I've got some stuff lined up in Illinois and some stuff lined up um, uh, in, in Pennsylvania. And um, I'm just now getting around to getting some stuff lined up more locally here in Ohio. I was prioritizing some of the venues out of state first so I could get on their calendars earlier for scheduling. But yeah, I'm going to be uh, at a couple of universities and things. So just going to keep adding to that list. Excellent. Excellent. And just out of curiosity, what's the closest Pennsylvania town to uh, to where you're at? Oh, uh, you know, it's hard to say because there's some there's some towns right out towards uh, Allegheny National Forest where I go do a lot of my backpacking, yeah. where I pretty much do all my backpacking. Um, and that's about maybe two hours, maybe two and a half hours. I'm not sure exactly where the nearest town is, but it's probably around there. And that's about as far as like Pittsburgh is. But I would say the nearest town is probably uh, 
there is a town that that's right on the border of Ohio that I have to go past on my way to way to Pittsburgh, and I can't think of the name of it. That, whatever <laughs> that town is, that's probably the closest one. Uh, sorry to put you on the spot with that, but when you said you were southeast of Cleveland, I'm thinking, wait a minute, he's pretty close to to Pennsylvania. So yeah. too far. I think I think I can get to the border in just about two hours. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Mitch, it's been great talking to you. Looking forward to having you back uh, with your next. Uh, next book, whatever that may be. And looking forward to seeing you at the Writers' Absolutely. Conference of Northern Appalachia in March. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it as well, Lawrence. Thanks a lot for this opportunity to, to, to chat with you and, and with the fans of Sunbury. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.